Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. This week, we have a special guest who is from within the Panoply family. Aisha Harris is the uh, Slate staff writer who co-wrote a piece called The Black Film Canon that went up on Slate last week. She uh, co-wrote it with the culture editor, Dan Coyce. With Oscar so white kind of in the distance, but uh, Hollywood not really looking any more diverse than it was before, uh, we wanted to talk to Aisha about why now is the time for a black film canon and uh, what it might teach Hollywood about inclusivity going forward. And then speaking of inclusivity, the Tony Awards, which is not usually a transition that makes sense, uh, but they are happening on Sunday. They are primed to hand a lot of awards to people of color and have included a lot of them in the nominees, which is very exciting and maybe another example to the Oscars of what they can learn. So we'll talk about the big contenders for the year, which is Hamilton and everybody else, and then what sets these really nerdy theater awards apart and why we can't stop watching them. But first, the week in Oscar news, just very briefly, this week in ESPN and ABC are debuting the first part of a miniseries, but also a movie called OJ Made in America. It's a documentary. It's eight hours long, seven hours long, eight hours long. I keep hearing different things. I think it's seven, but who knows? <laughs> it's long. long, is the point. Um, but it did run in theaters, and it played at Sundance and, and Tribeca as well, I think. So it qualifies for Oscar consideration. I mean, is this? I have not yet watched it, so I would like to learn more about it. But uh, is this a docu- an eight-hour documentary going to be a contender that we're going to be talking about? I mean, I think that um, it's, it's, it's very much aided by the, the recent popularity of the FX mm-hmm. you know, fictionalized show. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the running time is certainly daunting, but I think it's also something that is a document that's not just about sports. It's not just about murder. It's it's about race. It's about America. I mean, you know, it, it's about a lot of things. And I think that that it has a scope that and and a sort of um, an aura surrounding it um, that, yeah, I think people will pay attention to it who are voting for these kind of things. I, I, I really do. Mike, what do you think? I mean, I think they'll, I don't think they'll watch all of it, but although <laughs> everyone says you can't stop watching it once you yeah. start. I haven't right. seen like it Like People vs. O.J. Simpson, which we all binged. Yeah. yeah. So uh, maybe they will watch all of it. But yeah, I agree. I mean, it's sort of a, it's sort of a cool concept, like an eight hour documentary, you know, helps yeah. it stand out. Uh, yeah. Seven hours? Seven hours? <laughs> That's I think, long. I think if you're going to ask people to commit many hours like that to something, it may as well be O.J. Simpson, who we all know we're fascinated by. I mean, yeah. how, how many more hours did you spend watching the trial in the mid-90s? I guess right. the internet wasn't around then. But wait a minute. So it's one do? chunk? It's not like broken it's up like into four, episodes? It's, it's, it's four parts, I think. Yeah. So uh, somebody's going to argue that this should be like a TV like a TV series rather than a film, right? Right. Well, and I think they're kind of having their cake and eating it too because it did it did get a theatrical release and so it so to qualify it, but it's also airing on TV. So it's it's kind of this weird hybrid bastard. Yeah. Thing. I mean, um, somebody I with like a, like whoever directed yeah. Wiener is going to be like that's a TV show. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think when they exactly. showed it at Sundance, they showed it in two four hour chunks. So yeah. you know that's you know Lawrence of Arabia isn't that long, but you know it's an intermission. It's just a you know a day long movie experience. Day long movie experience. But yeah, I mean that this might be the. Uh, the trend for the future if binge watching becomes so big and you know the jinx yeah. could have been oscar qualified i guess if uh they'd yeah if you it. just turn it into two like one <laughs> giant movie with maybe an intermission they, maybe they should have yeah uh, i mean i think but you know we're halfway through the year and um i think we've only really these two document wiener and this to talk mm-hmm. about so i mean i would say right now that this insanely long thing is kind of 
ahead of the pack. I mean, I, yeah. I don't really hear there. You know, there weren't a lot of documentaries at Sundance, uh, other ones that got a lot of notice other than Wiener. Um, Tribeca, which is usually, if nothing else, good for documentaries of a film festival that's good at that. Nothing kind of really came out of there. So, yeah, I mean, if we're if we're going to, you know, halfway through the year, if we're going to kind of handicap, I would I would give it to, to OJ. Oh, man. RJ Simpson wins an Oscar. <laughs> well, he's not going to win it, but yeah. <laughs> it's about how he killed people. I mean, it's like, does, it, does, it, does it come down on the side of that he killed everybody? I, not everybody. Two people. Everybody. <laughs> um, Nicole I and Ron. I haven't seen it yet. Richard, spoiler alert. Spoiler I, I, alert for of, those it, at home. I think it's it's a it's stance is, is kind of apparent, but... Um, it's it's fair i would i would say yeah yeah you know in in the same way that like the show the the scripted show was sort of like it didn't say it outright but mm-hmm. the it, show leaned heavily toward he yeah did i would it. say yeah. the documentary it's based is a on bit, uh tubin's book is basically just like he did it right yeah right I, th- I think the documentary is is more reserved than that but okay um but it's also much more about the culture of his life and career i mean right. it's about the murders obviously but like you almost kind of feel like the the that particular part of his life is is sort of just one beat in this bigger yes. tale it's about how he was yeah. made in America, which is a you know crass way to talk about the murder of two people, but like <laughs> yes. it, it's true in the scope of this movie. And do they mention the CTE thing? Because I'm obsessed with this now. Oh, that yeah. the guy that Will Smith played in Concussion uh, thinks they? he has CTE. Uh, I don't. I don't remember. I was so, so long ago. That I, saw yeah. it. I think it maybe comes into the end, but I don't. Not in the way that I think that people want it to. Like, I think that that's another conversation. We're not done talking about OJ. I think that's that's coming. That's up. That's next year's that. documentary, yeah. Yeah. Oscar oh winner. Yeah. yeah, OJ CTE. It'll do what concussion couldn't do. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm definitely setting my DVR for it, so hopefully I will be uh, even further in, enmeshed in the OJ story than I was during People vs. OJ Simpson. It's been quite a year yeah. for it. So right now we're joined by Aisha Harris, who is a staff writer, culture writer for Slate. And uh, first of all, Aisha, thank you so much for uh, your phoning from uh, the Panoply Brooklyn offices. So it's all in the family. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So you last week published with uh, Dan Coy. So I guess as your editor, he's Slate's culture editor, a piece called The Black Film Canon, which is like ultimate internet bait because anytime you call something a canon or say this is the ultimate blank, people go crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you? Was that the reaction you guys were going for? Like just to, to kind of start the conversation by being really definitive about something like this? Yeah, I mean, for sure. That's anytime you do something like that, it is going to be it's first of all, we realize it's going to be subjective. So we we understand that it's kind of like walking into very delicate territory. At the same time, you know, we kind of gave ourselves a little leeway. We didn't rank them. So like mm-hmm. we, we we collected them. I think the only one we technically ranked was Do the Right Thing, which we said is like it's just obviously number one. It's like one of the most influential films, black or any sort of film uh, ever made. And um, it's also the film that I think the most people who we reached out to, who we pulled for this, for this canon, that is a film that came up the most often. So it was kind of hard to deny that that is like, that is probably if you're going to talk about black history on film and, and black film, that is the movie, the number one movie that everyone will mention. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's tough territory, but we wanted to kind of, we wanted to counter all of the other canons that exist and, and they're brave enough to call themselves canons and that don't include, uh, people of color or at least they tend not to include black, uh, films and films directed by black directors. Yeah. And what you guys did that, I mean, just uh, the concept of it, like you didn't just kind of sit down and say, Oh, what are our favorite 50 uh, movies by black filmmakers? You pulled 
old people, you kind of brought in like a, some really big names to pull this all together. So was that, I mean, like how did the process of getting all these people to weigh and go? And I mean, were, were they all like, oh my God, it's high time somebody did this? Some of them were. I mean, it was, we basically sat down, Dan and I, and we were like, all right, we want a list of people. Obviously, we don't want it to be just us. And we want people who have thought long and hard and who have even made a career out of, out of, discussing or making film from the black perspective. So we wanted to get um, both black filmmakers. Uh, so we we reached out to a bunch. Robert Townsend is one of the people featured. Uh, Ava DuVernay was was gracious enough to give us a list. Uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood, who directed Love and Basketball. Charles Burnett, who, who's just considered one of the best filmmakers, uh, I think, by anyone who's a cinephile. He, they all contributed, but we also wanted to get some, some other folks. So we also included some scholars, people who, um, specifically study and write about black film. And we also got a, a few, like, more cultural personalities, uh, W. Kamal Bell and, uh, Kevin Avery, who are the co-hosts of, uh, Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. <laughs> Which is the best is podcast a- <laughs> name out there, I think. <laughs> it is. It's, it's such a great podcast name. And, you know, they, they've talked a lot about black film on, on their podcast. So we were like, we should, you know, ask them. Uh, so we wanted to get as much of an, uh, an array of possible voices involved. Now, obviously, this this uh, one of the big criticisms we've had, and I I don't necessarily agree uh, disagree with, is is that you know it's it's very heavily American uh, mm-hmm. uh, list of filmmakers. Um, we did include a few international picks, but you know it, I think anytime you have an American publication, that's that's going to likely happen. And um, you know there were some films that we considered that we we didn't wind up including, and then there were some films that we considered that were just really hard to find. Uh, that was another thing. So like if we like you find couldn't an, see it, them to like know if you wanted them on the list. Exactly. Yeah. Some of them are are, are incredibly hard to find, um, even on DVD. So that made it difficult. There are some that we even reached out to certain filmmakers who are still around and were able to, we asked them, you know, we can't find this. Can you send it to us? And one of them was like, sorry, I don't have it. I was like, you directed the film. Uh, So it was, it was unfortunate, but yeah, it, it was, it was a, it was definitely a challenge that was very fun, but also sometimes very frustrating as well. What would you say just in polling all these filmmakers and kind of cultural people, what would you say like, was there a big surprise? Was there a movie that, that you weren't aware of that, that you were, you're glad that the, the kind of compiling of this list made you aware of or, or what, what was sort of unexpected about when you were putting it together? Yeah, I mean, there were definitely a few films on the list that I had never heard of, and also some that they recommended that didn't wind up making the list that I hadn't heard of, but like I planned to seek out myself. I think, um, let's see, uh, I Like It Like That, which is directed by Darnell Martin. It's sort of a very small indie film, and um, she's a black filmmaker, but the the movie actually centers around, uh, it's sort of like a romantic comedy, but it also centers around uh, Puerto Rican characters. Uh, Rita Moreno is one of the stars. So And Lauren Velez uh, from Years on Dexter, right? I'm, I'm, I'm I believe she's the star, right? I think so, yeah. Um, so there were movies like that that I had never heard of. Also, one surprise that like a few people recommended was Car Wash, which I had heard of, obviously, um, but like I had never seen, and I feel like its reputation has not held up uh, in the years since it was released in the in the seventies. It's by, directed by Michael Schultz, who also directed one of my favorite movies, Cooley High, which is also on the list. But Car Wash is one of those movies where I always thought like, oh, that people hate that movie. It's so flimsy and 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 like stereotypical. 
people and but like watching it and and for, uh, based on the recommendations like I realized wow this movie yeah yes it's funny but it's also really it's trying to do a lot of different things it's 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 way heavier than I think people remember it as and so I, I think it's like a really great film and I hope people go back and rewatch it or watch it for the first time like I did and 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 see like this is a really interesting film and I think it's a really great film Aisha of course I can't help looking at a uh less list like this to see who's missing. I noticed Lee Daniels isn't there. Was there any conversation around whether Precious or or the Butler or anything else of his should have uh, been included? Um, not not really. Um, no one <laughs> to, to just didn't honest, come like, up um, at all. Well, so it came up among myself and Dan, but I can't say that anyone we polled named one of his films. And and yeah, that is. Yeah, I, I I admire Lee Daniels and and I loved the first season of Empire. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he we we never I can say that we never seriously considered uh, putting him on uh, his movies on the list. Well, I like that in, when you have the tags of how to sort the list. Uh, there's one that just is Spike because Spike Lee is obviously <laughs> a kind of the patron saint of the whole list. But I was curious about if uh, if including the Twenty Fifth Hour was ever any hesitation, just because that you know it's by a black director, but it's pretty much about white characters, which is an exception on this list. And, you know, Spike Lee's made a lot of movies about a lot of things, and a lot of people think 25th Hour is his best film. So is that kind of the overarching argument for saying that it had to be on there? Yeah, I mean, there was never really any question for myself uh, as to why it should be included. I just think it's a great film. I don't, I don't think it's his best film, but I do think that it is definitely one of his best films in the last, whenever it came out, 15, 15 16 years. years. And, you know, I... Yes, this this list was partially about black people being able to tell their own stories, but I think at the same time, it, what what I what I love and what I hope to see more of is black filmmakers being able to tell other people's stories too, because mm-hmm. there have been so many examples of of other directors, mostly white directors, who have been able to tell other people's stories. So why not? I mean, I think most filmmakers will tell you like if a st- if a story is good, a story is good, and there there are obviously exceptions, and there is something to be said for a black person directing. A, a film about black characters, and, and I want to continue to see that and see more of it. But at the same time, I do think that black directors shouldn't have to be put in a box. Yeah. Uh, they should be able to do as much as they want creatively, and, and if that means writing for white characters, and honestly, I think black people understand white people more often than white people <laughs> understand black people. So I'm I'm all for it, and that was never a hesitation with 25th Hour. Well, that's kind of the, you know, the progress that you work toward just in terms of getting the industry to be more diverse. And if you're a black director, you don't feel like you have to make a film about, uh, you know, black people because they're underrepresented. Like there's enough room for everybody to kind of make whatever you want. Like that seems like part of the, you know, goal we all want to accomplish in Hollywood. Exactly. Yeah. Aisha, I just wanted to talk more about um, Do the Right Thing, which is one of my favorite films. And I remember seeing it in the theater when it came out and just uh, like having my head blown off. And I just wanted was was curious to know, you know, with you and Dan and the folks that you polled from your perspective, what is it about that movie that is so important and uh, enduring and I guess kind of, you know, change everything that followed? I think part of it is. Like pretty much every, almost every piece of it works. And I think that 
when you combine the very sort of theatrical nature of of the film, the you know the the shouting the the scene where people are shouting at the the camera and throwing out expletives and 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 just the placement, the way he stages the, the the characters on screen in this very theatrical way, and then you combine that with just a very colorful cast of characters, everyone from Mookie to Sal and and was it Mother Deer and and uh Ozzy Davis's character. I just think that those characters are just so in, indelible. And then on top of that, the movie unfortunately in many ways is still relevant. And I think you can watch it now and see so many parallels to things that are happening today. Um I remember Spike Lee, I think uh Last year, the year before, when Eric Garner, the Eric Garner case happened, and and he like did a side by side of Radio Rahim and Eric Garner, both you know being choked to death by the police. I think that just the fact that it's still very very relevant is one reason why it just remains so impactful and and so important. It's also it's funny. I just recently saw Night of the Hunter for the first time, and I had never realized that the Radio Rahim's rings. The love and hate rings were a reference yeah. to that, to which was directed by Charles Lawton, and you know they have this really dark, frightening preacher with love and hate uh, tattooed on his on his hands, and you realize the depth of Spike Lee's knowledge of film and of cultural references, and and it's it's one of the reasons I think why that film just resonates so much over time. It was based in such a real felt experience that continues to be relevant today, but it's also based in this incredible encyclopedic knowledge. For sure. I mean, that Night of the Hunter is like one of my favorite films. So that I, I love that reference. And also, I think recently he revealed that the opening dance scene with um, Rosie Perez was inspired by the opening of Bye Bye Birdie uh, with, <laughs> really? with, with Anne Margaret oh, like, wow. behind a blue background. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like he he like pulls from so many different uh, cinematic realms. And I, and I think, yeah, I agree. That's that's part of what makes Do the Right Thing so great. It being really hot outside today as we record this just makes me want to watch Do the Right Thing so much. Like every time the summer comes around, I just want to like sit in a lawn chair on the sidewalk and watch Do the Right Thing. (laughs) So uh, one of the filmmakers on this list who I think I was sort of most excited about when when, uh, she kind of broke big was Cassie Lemons, uh, you know, who was Eve's bio from 1997 is on the list. And recently on Twitter, someone had said, Oh, you know, Cassie Lemons has only made, you know, three films in the last however many years and, you know, it's a crime or something. And she responded and she said, well, it's not a crime. It's a life. Like, I'm busy. I'm, I teach. I have kids. Like, whatever. I'm curious, like, if there's anyone on this list, maybe her, maybe anyone else who, um, you know, has made a movie that you loved and you're kind of really eager for their next project. Is there anyone who you're kind of like, you want to like prod if you could to say, all right, well, what's your, what's your next movie going to be? Yeah. I mean, it, it really sucks because I, I feel like a lot of the filmmakers, like the reason, one of the reasons why Spike Lee is so prevalent on this list is not just because he, you know, has made so many great films, but also because out of most black directors, he's been lucky enough to have such a prolific career. A lot of these filmmakers, They've, they only have one or two films under their belt and they've been in the game for 30, 40 years or they might have already died and, and that's what they leave behind. And that's very true for women, especially on this list. Leslie Harris, who's uh, just another girl on the IRT made our list. That's her only feature film and that debuted at Sundance, uh, I think, I think it was 94, 93. So 
that's 20 odd years later and she still hasn't directed another feature film. And, and I would l- love to see more from her. I mean, we were lucky enough that uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood, uh, you know, she had Love and Basketball and then it took her another decade or so before Beyond the Lights came out. So I, you know, I, I think part of it is like maybe for Cassie Lemons, that is the case. Like she's got a lot of projects under her belt. But I also think that in general, it's just... Black directors and black female directors are not, even if they have a hit or a, a mid-sized hit, they are not getting the same offers and opportunities as their white counterparts who make the same sort of splash do. I mean, they're not getting asked, like with the exception of Ava DuVernay and Ryan Coogler, which is like a good sign. They're not getting asked to go and direct like a big budget superhero movie. Not that I necessarily want them to see them do that, but like the opportunity isn't even available to them. And even with Spike Lee, I mean, it wasn't, it's not like he's been handed a whole lot of uh, studio films. He kind of had to do a lot of self-financing and create his own sort of industry, right? Exactly. I mean, he he even he's gone on record and said, like, Inside Man, which is his big sort of his one big Hollywood movie, um, which made I think it is his highest grossing film. Uh, he had trouble. The reason why there's no sequel is because, like, he couldn't find the money. And even his last film, Chirac, he had to uh, I think he what well, was it Chirac or was it? Um, I think he Sweet kickstarted Blood of, Sweet Blood of Jesus. Just, yeah, he kickstarted Sweet Blood of Jesus. So that's him. He like 30 plus years later, he still has to like find the funds. He's, he's like really, and, and it, I think it's a testament to his, his willpower that he's still, even though it's been so difficult sometimes to scrap up the money, he, he, he finds it and he makes it work. Do you think that there was the, the kind of reaction to Ava DuVernay and Ryan Coogler, you know, where, you know, all of this, they are in the mix for these bigger studio movies, uh, superhero movies, whatever. Do you think that that is an exception to a sort of really a bad rule or do you think that they're, they're an actual sign of, of, of progress. Do you think there is a, is a change happening where, you know, I, you think back again to Eve's bio 97, Cassie Lemons, like if a male white filmmaker had had a movie that had broken that big, like he would be handed out, you know, the keys to, to Hollywood and she wasn't, but now maybe Coogler and, and, and DuVernay are getting maybe those opportunities that filmmakers 20 years ago didn't. Do you see that being um, a lasting change or is it just kind of a, a weird anomaly right now that, but it's, you know, the system is still kind of broken. I, th- I think it is a sign that things are getting better, but I'm, I will never be the type of person who will say, like, it's on the, necessarily it's on the right track. Uh, it's the cynic in me because I do feel like we, we often see these sort of swells and, and all of a sudden we have all these black films. You have the 90s where there are a lot of uh, films and a lot of them didn't make our list, but there are a lot of like romantic comedies starring black actors and and uh, directed by black people. And that was a wave and they did really well. And then suddenly like 10 years later, it just kind of dissipated. You can say the same thing about TV and, and that that whole realm. So I, I think it's a good sign. Like I think Ava DuVernay and Ryan Coogler in many ways have been able to go further than most of their counterparts have. But I'm I'm hesitant to say that th- this is anything lasting because Hollywood is a business and it is about money. 
I do find some solace in the fact that Ava DuVernay has been very, very active in with her own distribution company, um, Array, and trying to get, you know, underrepresented filmmakers uh, represented uh, and 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 funded and and getting their films out there. So that's a good sign. But yeah, I was so glad to, that this list reminded me of Night Catches Us, which I saw at Sundance uh, the year that it debuted there, and the director Tanya Hamilton hadn't been doing anything since then. It was one of those things you're like, oh, well, that's an exact the perfect example of someone who had a film that was really worth of being a calling card for bigger stuff. But she's working on uh, Queen Sugar, the TV series that Ava DuVernay is involved in as a, a, a director, at least, and I think as a producer as well. So just the idea that, you know, Ava DuVernay is using her status to pull up another director on this list who we haven't been hearing enough from. That's a really promising sign from her. Yeah. And I mean, I will say that Spike Lee also has been very good about being having protégés. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the people on this list, especially uh, women film filmmakers, have been uh, his sort of his protégé. But again, he can only bring them so far, which is unfortunate. Aisha, if you had to pick one movie for your desert island from the, that incredible 1971-72 black exploitation period, Shaft, Sweet Sweetbacks, Badass Song or Superfly, which would it be? Just, <laughs> just had to choose one. You know, I'd probably choose Superfly. Yeah, the soundtrack um, for the soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, uh, like as much as I love, I love like Isaac Hayes and Shaft. Like I, I feel like I, I would much rather have Curtis Mayfield like sing me to death uh, yeah. <laughs> as I'm like wasting away on this island. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and also it's just I feel like it's um even though it's it's a very there's a lot of like it's not always politically correct and and it sort of in a way glorifies the pimp lifestyle. I do I think I enjoy Superfly uh as an entertainment uh commodity more so than I do Shaft just a little bit. I was I was going to ask you a similar question but you know for a more realistic scenario. I mean you guys talked about how a lot of these are available on streaming and you know some of them are hard to find but some aren't but if you're listening to this and want to watch one of these movies tonight like what's available to find somehow that people should you know see now if they never have. So one of the picks, I guess, is a surprise pick, which I'm surprised no one's really like even mentioned. Maybe they're just like baffled by the rest of the list. But we did include the the new documentary, OJ, Made in America, which I think most of well, most of America hasn't seen. I think it's premiering next week. It's uh, this um, Saturday, actually. On, oh, this Saturday. Saturday so, on ABC, and then the rest of it will be on ESPN next week, I think. Right. So it's seven hours long. So it's, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a task to undertake, but it is summer. So maybe you have some time. Uh, <laughs> I think that is an excellent, excellent movie to, to check out. I think it, it does. So like being someone who was like very young when all that OJ stuff happened, it, it, sh- it gave me a lot of perspective and, and made me realize what OJ was before he was OJ the, the murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's, and it d- digs so deeply into, to race and, and the racial politics. I mean, it's called Made in America and it, and, and it kind of explains how the racial politics uh, within America made OJ into what he was. So that's like, especially if you want to be up on conversation and pop cultural conversation, like I would check that out next week. Elsewhere, I I know Medicine for Melancholy, the Barry Jenkins independent film, um, is on Netflix now that um, stars Wyatt Cenac. And it's a really lovely uh, romantic drama filmed in black and white and really, really great to check out. I'm trying to think. Oh, The Spook Who Sat by the Door is on YouTube. It's a, it's a great film, a film that I also discovered via this list. Um, and it's a satire, really scathing about a, a black man. It's based on, on the novel of the same name by Sam Greenlee. And it's about a, a black man who infiltrates the CIA to become the first black 
attack a case officer and then uses their tax- tactics against them to help spark a revolution of black Americans across America. That sounds great. <laughs> it does sound yeah, great. It's, it's, really, it's really powerful. And again, another movie that seems very relevant in terms of just the way black and white people interact with each other. And it's just really smart. So I would definitely check that out uh, on YouTube. Well, you've given us a really good uh, summer viewing list to, uh, you know, for when we're not seeing uh, the Ninja Turtles and Now You See Me Twos of summer movie season. (laughs) This is a much better list. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for, first of all, for putting this list together and then for joining us to talk about it. It was uh, great to learn more about it. Of course, it was my pleasure. The Tony Awards will be held on Sunday, June 12th. And uh, as happens sometimes, uh, the outcome isn't going to be that unclear. Hamilton, I think, is widely expected to be the runaway favorite. It has the most nominations for a musical ever, or most nominations for anything ever. It broke a whole bunch of records because it had three supporting actors nominated, which is Jonathan Groff really put them over the top. But there are a lot of other interesting things to watch. There's a lot of movie stars who are nominated. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really interesting straight plays and other musicals. Uh, Richard, you are kind of my... uh, my best Tony person you, you reminded me that we should talk about it. So what has you excited about the Tonys this year? Well, I mean, I think that I should caveat that I have not seen Hamilton, which is like my great shame as both a theater goer and a, you know, culture what writer. What do you live in New York for? You know, and I had an offer to go see it like right when it was opening and I was like, mm, maybe I'll just, I'll Does see it for me? <laughs> I brought, I brought like my friend, <laughs> anyway, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I was like, oh, I'll see what the reviews are like and then, you know. But you've listened to the soundtrack, you're oh, familiar sure, I've heard with it, yeah. the whole I, thing. You know, and I think that like the, the joke that I heard, you know, a bunch of people make is like, instead of broadcasting the Tonys, they should just do a live Hamilton, <laughs> not a <laughs> bad idea. It's a really show. good idea. Like because public service, just, and then like maybe throughout, like they can just subtly hand awards to people <laughs> yeah. as they're walking just kind stage. of throw an award yeah. from the uh, stage to somebody in the audience. Here you go, Dan yeah, because yeah. um, it's really going to do a lot. It's going to win a lot of things. So I think that like Katie, have you seen it? Yes, I, uh, uh, yeah. well, because Lin Manuel Miranda went to Wesleyan, so I kind of had a lot of people who were already very excited about it. Um, oh, so do you know I, people I, who are in it? No, no, no. Um, okay. He he was there before I was barely, but uh, I just knew a lot of people who knew that it was going to be a big deal. So I bought tickets early and saw it the week that it opened, which is yeah probably my best. I did the New same York thing, thing in, in broad on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's probably like, the mm-hmm. best move I've ever done theater wise. So stick yeah. with us. Friends. You just have to you just yeah. have to live until twenty twenty five, and you can finally get tickets. For yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah, I think that it, given that we 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 really assume that Hamilton is going to win a lot. Um, I think that we could also talk about like the plays, which for our purposes cynically maybe sync up a little bit better with the Oscars because there's like, you know, movie actors and TV actors. And I think there's a lot there. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. I think that for me, the biggest question is whether Lupita Nyong'o is going to win for Best Actress mm-hmm. in a Play for Eclipsed. Um, she's up. She has some stiff competition from Jessica Lange in Long Day's Journey Tonight, Michelle Williams in Blackbird, Laurie Metcalf in Misery. And Sophia Canito in The Crucible, all Those of are, them are good. That's four Oscar nominees in there, right? Plus Laurie uh, Metcalf. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and Jessica yeah. Lange has two Oscars. Like Lupita has an Oscar. It's a really stacked crowd. Yeah, I think that probably Nyong'o's biggest competition is Jessica Lange, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. I think that Eclipsed has a, a sort of. It feels a little more culturally re- relevant right now and 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 you know it's a, it's about um women in the Liberian war i think in the 90s 
who are sort of prisoners of this uh, this war camp and um, and it's it, there are no men in it so it's really focusing on the on women during war and it's a really it's really a heavy subject matter but it has a, a kind of spirit and a levity to it that that um, that Lupita Nyong'o in particular her character kind of provides a lot of um, in the first half of the play yeah so I I don't know I think she's really strong in it and I think that um, people are really enamored of her. She had a little bit of a bobble where um, I'm, I, I, the rumor mill is that she originally was not doing the eight shows a week and then people kind of complained and she was oh. like, oh, I'm actually, uh, she like issued a statement being like, upon reconsideration, I've decided to do the eight shows a week. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> well, so maybe there's some contrition there, but, but yeah, I think that she's a really interesting contender. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see her win. And then. Um, I would. I would maybe just going. You think yeah. so? I don't know. I just no, think I mean, just when in doubt, yeah. choose the conservative uh, option in these I did these go, I went to one of these Peggy Siegel um, luncheons for Long Day's Journey tonight, yeah. and I actually sat at Jessica Lang's table and met Ooh. her, which was pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, but the room was like, and it was, this was American Theater Wing people. This was voters. This was, this was a luncheon for yeah. Tony voters. Uh, and they were just like smitten. With yeah, yeah, yeah. So you might have a point. Yeah. <laughs> there was another, there were uh, the other, ca- the rest of the cast was there too. And I won't name any names, but one of them had had maybe a little too much afternoon wine. So it made for an interesting Q- one the, Q&A. Was it an Irish one? That's, uh, that's, <laughs> on, I'm not gonna say. that's on theme for the play though. Uh-huh. Yes, just right. Yeah. Just drinking it's for hours and hours. Method acting. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, the, this category has gone to uh, very well established movie stars a lot of times. So, I mean, like Helen Mirren won last year. Viola Davis has won. Frances McDormand has won. One. So then again, uh, you know, Lapita is an exciting star. We've been so we were so excited about her after her big Oscar season, and since then her movie work has been uh, as two motion capture characters. So it really is kind of time to have her back doing something. Yeah, her face. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and she and she really is. You know, she's a theater trained actress, and, and this is kind of I think, and she's been with this play for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a. Um, it's, I, don't, I don't know. I think she has a good shot, but I think Mike, you might have a point about about Jessica Lange. Elsewhere, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of starry stuff. I think that Blackbird, the Jeff Daniels, Michelle Williams two-hander, I don't really think that either of them are contenders to win, but, the, you know, that they're also up for best revival of play, which is sort of an interesting distinction because that play was not on Broadway exactly, I don't think, when it was with Jeff Daniels and Alison Pill mm-hmm. back in like 2006, I think. Yeah, something like that. You know, so that'll be interesting. I think The Crucible in the revival is probably the most high profile just because of its flashy um, Belgian director and the Crucible um, feels like it should be involved in this more like didn't doesn't it seem kind of quiet for being like Ben Wishaw and Saoirse Ronan and like being such a big deal yeah I think that the the, the play with it's kind of a very high style I think it kind of alienated people um, and you know I think that also uh, the kind of late arrival of Long Day's Journey tonight which I think opened just last in, in, yeah, in April really like recently. really late like I think that kind of took people by surprise because in that play is such a gamble like it's four hours long it could be a slog and this one is not mm-hmm. so people didn't really expect that I think that pro- maybe before that you know the interesting the Crucible but director you're going to watch like a hugely like huge downer of a mid-century masterpiece is probably Long Day's Journey is more yeah. fun than The Crucible, which everybody had to sit through five times in college. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I will say that the director of The Crucible does a couple things in the in the production to try to in li- to like liven it up. Like mm-hmm. it, he try there's a literally a live wolf on stage at one point. Sure. Then get literally burned on in the, at the stake because that would be fun. <laughs> oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, totally. <laughs> no, there is flying. Um, and when the night I was there, Tilda Swinton was sitting right behind me. 
And I think that's, that's the best part of the production. The yeah. I think that Tilda Swinton yeah. in the audience every night to make you believe in witchcraft. And she sits in different places. <laughs> that's a new definition <laughs> of supporting actress, right. you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, just Tilda. Just, you just the, the, the awareness of Tilda Swinton around uh-huh. you really heightens the experience. Oh my of the god! Crucible. Yeah, it's like better than drugs. Yeah. Um, but that director also has a view from the bridge, which is a really lauded production, uh, way more than the Crucible was. That so was in the fall. So he, I don't know. Maybe he'll cancel himself out, or maybe he won't. And then I think that maybe the last category that could sort of be a Hamilton, or the only category maybe that could be like a Hamilton spoiler is best actress in a musical. Mm-hmm. Because while Philippa Sue from Hamilton is nominated and I'm, I'm told she's terrific she's and I've yeah. seen her in other things and she's a really promising young talent, she's up against some really big heavy hitters. I think that Carmen Cusack from Bright Star, which is the Edie Burkell, Steve Martin thing, I think we can probably cancel, figure her out. But then she's got Laura Benanti against her from She Loves Me and it's this like coloratura soprano role that like is crazy and, mm-hmm. and, and she knocks out of the park. Cynthia Erivo, a British actress who... Um, Helms the or heads this like really acclaimed revival of the color purple. She literally gets a standing ovation in the middle of the show. When yeah, she does her big eleven o'clock number. It's an yeah. incredible thing. to Yeah, witness. she's got this huge voice and she's um just you know seems very charming in every interview I've seen. So she's a I think a big contender. And then there's Jesse Mueller from Waitress, who is already a Tony winner. She won a couple years ago for Beautiful, mm-hmm. the Carol King musical. And uh, you know she that Waitress is a is a nice show with Sarah Bareilles music. It's kind of a you know it's like a middling kind of experience. But Jesse Mueller is so good and has such a beautiful voice and uh, is such a good actress that I don't know. I think that she might. I think that she could stand as like the the one entity from that show that's that's rewarded i i kind of think she might spoil i think she might win again which is crazy but yeah wow i'll tell you the gold derby guys are all cynthia are they it's about yeah 12 out of 13 of them not that they always know no, and I mean, I think... They, with, this may not be their wheelhouse. I don't know how well, they, how well they know the Tonys. With the, you know, Hamilton is kind of a uh, steamroller, and I don't really know how much the Tonys really like jumping on board like a bandwagon, you know, if they're like willing to kind of spread out. Like, you know, if you're nominated... Well, you know, Kate Winslet didn't win the year the Titanic steamrolled every other Oscar category. So, you know, it, you never know what's going to happen when you've got some, some kind of huge blockbuster in the mix. That's I true. I mean, you've got the three actors from Hamilton nominated against each other and Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Yeah, yeah, that's is, true. And I, I, I think that what they're they're kind of saying that it's going to be David Diggs. Yeah, he's got the right? flashiest role yeah. of the three of them for sure. So It won't be Groff, I don't think. No, God, if the, if the one white guy wins in that category from Hamilton. That would be not great. I mean, not that he, he is great in the show, but yeah. yeah, that would, I think even Jonathan Groff would probably say that would not be great. Um, I think that like, probably what the Tonys well, the, I mean, sometimes the shows that are nominated are closed already. But mm-hmm. one thing I like that they do, and you know, the, you know, CBS very um, commendably still airs them on yeah. TV in prime <laughs> time. Like, um, basically, PBS. So I think at this it point. is it is good theater uh, coverage or you know theater publicity. I think that, but what the Tonys do, they point to shows that maybe people coming to New York or who live in New York should see. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that. Obviously, Hamilton. We all know we got to see that. Um, but I think that um, the one I would recommend from from any of these is The Humans, mm-hmm. um, which is this great Stephen Caron play that was off Broadway and then transferred um, with the whole cast intact. Reed Burney's nominated, Jane Howdyshell's nominated. It's this really eerie, wonderful, dark, horrifying, but uh, deeply moving play about 
humans, <laughs> about people. Oh, if you don't have um, the four hours in you for a long day's journey into night, humans is not a bad it's a, alternative. It's a, it's, a, it's a cruel, quick 90 minutes. Um, but it's, it's about great. a family squabbling with each other, so yeah. it's a thematic relevance. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I saw both of those and really liked both of them. Yeah, and then I, unfortunately it closed, but if it ever gets revived or, or tours, King Charles Third, which is nominated for a bunch of things, um, which is this kind of, and very Vanity Fair, kind of, we, mm. I think we, had, we featured it in the magazine, yeah. actually, kind of speculative fiction about what happens when um, the Queen dies. And Charles becomes king is wonderful and soapy and three hours, but yeah, I terrific. wish I'd seen it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, the color purple is like not the best musical on the list, I don't think, but Cynthia Revo and also Daniel Brooks is nominated for featured actress, and we'll probably lose to Renee Lee Goldsberry of Hamilton. But uh, Daniel Brooks is she plays Tasty on Orange Is the New Black. She, yeah, you know her from that. She's so good in it. Um, yeah, and I'm really glad I'm seeing I it next see week. Really oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. hopefully they'll be celebrating some Tony wins. Yeah, no, I think I think that they they will be. I think I don't know what exactly, but I, I think they will get something. Well, I'm going to chime in and say people should see the humans just so that these guys aren't eating all that fake food in vain. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, that was the New York Times that did the story. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. Fake yeah. food it's and just, like well, it's uh, real food, it's disturbing, though. It's like but it's real, real, like not the food that you think right. it is. Yeah, it's, it's like, like soylent or something, yeah. which adds a real creepy element yeah. to an already creepy mm-hmm. play. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, no, there's there's a lot of good stuff. So you know, if you're hopefully listening and coming to town, there's uh, and and see my good friend all our. Lang's play. I mean, yes, I yeah, mean, she yeah. told you since to, we had lunch together. Yeah, we're just she's such a listener good, of the podcast, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, certainly. For all our Midwestern listeners, you know, when you're coming in your next tour of New York, yeah, hey, yeah, go take your family <laughs> to see the humans and then never speak to each other again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, do that and Long Day's yeah. Journey in tonight, and then, uh, then you, you're out of things and say hi to Tilda at the yeah. Crucible. <laughs> well, and and I and you know, um, I said there was a live wolf on stage. I, I should mention that I did not turn around to see if Tilda was still in her seat. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not, I'm not, she might be a warg or something. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away, across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside he was longing for something to be a part of. The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please rate and review us on iTunes. We appreciate it. We like having the attention and the help getting new listeners. You can find us all at VanityFair.com. And on Twitter, I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And Richard? Rylaws. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And we're all at Little Gold Men and love it when you tweeted us there. It's a little, little Twitter feed that could. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkel. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the most vocal Amtrak hater goes to Aisha Harris. I will never be the type of person who will say, like, it's not necessarily it's on the right track. 